You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. From my boyhood, I have loved and pursued a seafaring life, and I have performed many voyages to various parts of the world. It was impossible for me to surmise the difficulties and sufferings in which I should involve myself for nearly four long wretched years, almost two of which were passed on an inclement, desolate, and uninhabited island, where, destitute of everything necessary to human comfort, I endured every suffering of which humanity is capable, except death. Charles Bernard, 1836 Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 5, Castaway. The story of the castaway holds a unique place in English language literature and modern popular culture. If I say to you the words desert island, you instantly conjure not just a picture in your mind of some distant forbidding place, but a whole story about that place. It's a cliche in our culture. If you were stranded on a desert island, which five rock albums would you want with you? BuzzFeed does articles like that. 
Gary Larson, the cartoonist, used the desert island trope over and over again in his famous comic strip, The Far Side, in the 1980s. Slightly more seriously, fictional stories about castaways are a sure audience draw. The film, Cast Away, directed by Robert Zemeckis starring Tom Hanks, came out in the year 2000 and made $429 million at the box office. That film was the inspiration for a television series called Lost, which for a time after its premiere in 2004 was the number one show on network television. The basic plot of both of these pieces of modern fiction is exactly the same as it was when Daniel Defoe first wrote it down in a book called Robinson Crusoe published in 1719. From Daniel Defoe to Tom Hanks and J.J. Abrams, we've been hungrily consuming stories about castaways for 300 years now. But the story I've got for you tonight is better than Castaway, more compelling than Lost, even if it doesn't involve a talking volleyball or a smoke monster. My story, which comes from the second decade of the 19th century, is true. It's not fiction. What you're going to hear in this episode really happened to a man named Charles Bernard, who was deliberately marooned on a desolate and uninhabited island so far off the beaten path that he may as well have been stranded on the moon. This is a story of pure adventure. It comes directly from the words of Charles Bernard himself, who wrote some 20 years after the ordeal that he was, quote, submitting the work, therefore, to the judgment of his fellow citizens, dressed in the simple language of a seaman's journal, and hoping it may be received with that indulgence which claims as a narrative of sterling truth, composed by one whose eventful life has been mostly passed in traversing the boisterous ocean. We don't know much about Charles Bernard or his life before the events that made him famous. He was American, evidently from New York City, born sometime around 1781. In his memoir, he mentions having a wife and three kids, but it only goes by in passing. He seems to have been from a seafaring family. His father, Valentine Bernard, was about 60 years old in 1812, also a sailor. The younger Bernard was employed before 1812 by a shipping firm, Messrs. John B. Murray and Son, and apparently they had some considerable success. Charles Bernard's story opens in New York with a business proposition he made to the Murrays, an expedition to the South Atlantic to hunt seals. This was, at the time, a pretty lucrative business. The whaling trade was also very big, centering on Nantucket and New Bedford, Massachusetts. This is the world that Melville's Moby Dick centered on. Sealing was closely related to whaling, sort of an offshoot industry. In 1776, an English firm named Samuel Enderby, that was also the name of successive generations of its owners, they organized an expedition to the South Atlantic to hunt seals. The Enderbys were ostensibly in the whale oil business, but seals provided not merely oil, but also their skins were economically valuable, two for one. By the beginning of the second decade, there were 72 ships in the South Atlantic sealing trade, most of them British or American. Charles Bernard proposed to the Murrays of New York that they make it 73. The Murrays would purchase a ship that Bernard would command and pay for its outfitting. The Murrays would take 52% of the profits of the enterprise, 
Bernard the other 48%. He, Bernard, would pay the crew out of that 48% share. The deal was simple, but the actual course of the expedition was going to be a little bit more complicated. The way Bernard proposed it, the expedition would have two parts. First, they'd outfit a fairly sturdy vessel, a brig, a square-rigged, two-masted sailing ship that was pretty common for commercial vessels. The one the Murrays eventually bought, the Nanaina, weighed 132 tons. The brig would carry on board another, smaller boat called a shallop, a kind of excursion vehicle, larger than your standard whaleboat, about 20 tons, which is still fairly substantial. Bernard would sail the brig to the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic, where elephant seals, that's the best kind for oil and skins, were pretty plentiful. They'd stay there for a full season, hunt as many seals as possible, and then load up the Nanaina with seal skins and oil. Then, at the end of the season, Bernard and a portion of the crew proposed to take the shallop, the smaller boat, and stay at the Falklands, while a skeleton crew sailed the Nanaina and its cargo back to New York. In the meantime, Bernard and the crew of the shallop would continue hunting seals. When the Nanaina reached New York, they'd sell the cargo there and charter another ship to go back to the Falkland Islands and pick up Bernard and the crew of the shallop, which, by the time they got there, would hopefully have another full load of skins and oil ready to sell. Bernard, the crew, and the cargo would go aboard this second ship. Then they'd sail to China, sell the whole cargo for a huge profit, and finally sail back home as rich men. This whole caper from beginning to end would probably take two years, and in the middle of it, Bernard and the crew of the shallop would have to spend a very uncomfortable winter in the South Atlantic, not too many degrees north of the Antarctic Circle, about as far as you could get from anything else in the world in 1812. In choosing his crew, Bernard not only needed some pretty hardy guys for that part of the expedition, but he also needed an experienced captain who could sail the Nanaina back to New York after they landed in the Falklands. It turns out that Bernard chose his own father, Valentine Bernard, for this duty. He spent some time outfitting the Nanaina and choosing the rest of the crew. By early April 1812, they were about ready to leave, but trouble was brewing. That spring of 1812, the United States was ramping up to war with Great Britain, there were a number of long-simmering disputes between the two countries which had split imperfectly during the Revolution. One of the main issues was a practice called impressment. British Navy ships, whenever they needed fresh crew members, would essentially kidnap anybody who was suitable and force them into servitude aboard their ships, a kind of slavery that was totally involuntary and could last years. By 1812, the British had been at war with France under Napoleon for several years, and a lot of American men had been captured aboard ships stopped by the British on the high seas. This was not the only issue by any means, but it was an important one. The policy of impressment had been established by a document issued by the British government called the Orders in Council, which established the basis of Britain's economic warfare against France which by 1812 controlled large portions of continental Europe. As war fever was breaking out in Washington, D.C., Congress passed a bill in the spring of 1812 to embargo all merchant ships leaving American ports for a period of 90 days. This measure was designed to make sure that American ships weren't out on the seas at the time war was declared. 
When Bernard heard that this bill was passed, he decided to act quickly. On April 6, 1812, Bernard's expedition hastily left New York. He laid up at Sandy Hook for another six days to take on the last of the crew. Then, before the port was closed and war was declared, the Nenina sailed for the Cape Verde Islands, the first stop on a somewhat roundabout voyage to the South Atlantic. This voyage took a long time. Due to several side trips and some heavy weather, Bernard says they didn't reach the Falkland Islands until the 7th of September, five months after they set out from New York. On that day, the Nenina dropped anchor in a place called Hooker's Harbor on New Island, 6,409 miles from New York, as the crow flies. At first, the plan went fine. At Hooker's Harbor, Bernard and his crew assembled the shallop, which they called the Young Nanina, intending to use it as a sort of excursion boat to cruise around the island hunting seals. Summer in the southern hemisphere is the reverse of when it is up here. For nearly four months until January, they cruised around in the shallop, taking a lot of seal skins and oil. Bernard covers this portion of the voyage in half a page, so it seems like nothing out of the ordinary happened. On January 3, 1813, Bernard and the men who went with him on the shallop returned to where the Nenina was moored on New Island. Hooker's Harbor was a base for whalers and sealers, and when they got there, they found another American ship there called the Hope, which had brought a bunch of mail. Among the letters transferred from the Hope was a message from Bernard's employers, John B. Murray and Son, who told him that the war had been declared, and he probably better think about giving up the whole enterprise and returning to New York. The war had been going on for six months. President Madison signed the declaration in June, but word was pretty slow traveling between New York and the Falkland Islands. Bernard acted pretty quickly. He didn't immediately give up the voyage, but he was afraid that English whalers might visit Hooker's Harbor, and it was quite possible that the British government had granted whalers what they called letters of mark, papers that commissioned merchant ships to raid ships of the enemy and take their cargo. Essentially, they were privateers, legalized piracy. Bernard decided to get the Nanina out of there and take her to his sheltered harbor where she was less likely to be discovered. In one day, Bernard and the crew packed up everything and sailed the ship to a desolate harbor on the island of what was then called English Maloon, now called West Falkland Island. The letters from the Hope also contained another bit of news that gave Bernard some hope. They reported the, that the orders in council, you remember that was the uh, British government policy that established impressment, the orders in council had been rescinded, ironically only just a few days before the United States declared war. So it wasn't unreasonable to expect that the war wouldn't last very long. Perhaps it was already over, but they just hadn't gotten the word yet. So instead of scotching the whole expedition, Bernard decided they'd stay at this desolate little harbor for the next year and wait until things calmed down, and hunt a lot of seals in the interim. When the war was over, they could sail back to New York with a cargo hold full of valuable seal skins, and he believed the Nenina had all the provisions they'd need to hold out for a year. For a couple of months, they did pretty well. Bernard and his crew built little shelters on land from various pieces of the Nenina. They used the shallop to sail to the most fertile seal rookeries, and they gradually increased their catch. Then one day in April 1813, Bernard and his crew were working near the ship when they noticed several columns of smoke rising into the sky from the south. 
Bernard suspected that these might be from fires set by Spaniards. Spain, which controlled Argentina at that time, purported to have a claim on the Falkland Islands, and occasionally sent military ships to clean out foreign sealers. As the days wore on and the smoke continued, though, Bernard started to wonder if they might be signal fires set by someone who'd been shipwrecked. After consulting with his crew, Bernard decided to sail down there in the shallop to check it out. On the way, one of Bernard's crew, Fanning, said he discovered a shoe in a part of a freshly killed and skinned seal, which convinced Bernard that somebody had been shipwrecked nearby. Eventually, as they sailed toward the spoke, they saw a makeshift flagpole made from part of a ship's mast, and ultimately they discovered a bunch of people camped on the beach on Eagle Island. It was clear they weren't Spaniards. In fact, they were obviously Brits. Two of them wore the uniforms of British Marines. There was also a woman among them, the first woman the crew of the Nanaina had seen in a year. The survivors on the beach were overjoyed to be rescued, and they didn't seem bothered to notice the American flag flying for the mast of the Nanaina. Long story short, the Brits camped on the beach were survivors. There were 47 of them in total. Survivors of a ship called the Isabella, which had been traveling from Australia, which was then called Botany Bay, toward London. On February 9th, two months earlier, the Isabella wrecked in a storm on that uninhabited island. The captain of the Isabella, George Higton, kept the survivors together as best he could. They built shelters on the beach from wreckage of the ship. He even had a plan to build a new boat out of the timbers of their old one and sail to Buenos Aires, but they didn't have much in the way of tools. For a couple of days, Bernard and his men hung around the campsite of the Isabella survivors. Bernard started to notice a couple of things about them. For one thing, there were some divisions among them. A couple of the British survivors were pretty surly characters. Especially one sailor named Samuel Ansel, who Bernard was warned to be wary of. The second thing was that the Brits seemed to know nothing about the war between Britain and the United States. Obviously, they'd started out before news of it reached Australia. Should he tell them about the war? Ultimately, Bernard decided not to tell them anything until after he'd reached an agreement with Higton. Once Higton realized his idea of building a boat wasn't going to work, he made a deal with Bernard. The Americans would bring the survivors to the nearest port aboard the Nanaina, but on the condition that they turn over any salvageable cargo to Bernard. That would reimburse him at least some of the cost of his lost seal profits, because they were going to have to ditch all of the seal skins in their hold to make room for the survivors. Higton agreed. They actually drew up a written contract, and the captain of the British Marines read it to the survivors on the beach. Then Bernard told them about the war. He writes, The disclosure did not appear to make any alteration in the minds of the crew and passengers. However, as time wore on, there were clearly some among the Isabella survivors who didn't trust the Americans and may have been plotting against them, as Bernard began to suspect. The agreement was reached in April, but it took several weeks to get everything ready. The Nanaina was moored a long distance away, and it took quite a while to ferry survivors and any salvageable cargo back to it in the shallop. Also, the weather was getting worse. May and June are in the Falklands, like November and December are in high northern latitudes. A terrible gale struck on May 22nd and lasted two weeks. 
During this time, Bernard's crew and the British castaways were surviving on various wild game they hunted around the island. These included a lot of wild birds, foxes, boars, and the occasional penguin. On June 10, 1813, a week after the gale ended, Bernard took a boat to an adjacent island, Beaver Island, to look for fresh water and some game. He took with him a dog and four men, Samuel Ansel, Joseph Albrook, and James Lauder, all British seamen from the Isabella, and Jacob Green, a member of Bernard's own crew, an African-American whaler originally from New Bedford. They caught some wild hogs and were bringing them back to the Nanaina anchored in the harbor at New Island, only to find the ship was gone, vanished, no trace of her. Bernard writes, quote, We were so confused and irritated that we could hardly persuade ourselves that we had been thus barbarously deserted, until we were constrained by the certainty of the fact to turn our thoughts to ourselves and to devise means for prolonging our existence, end quote. In a small boat with four other guys, three of which were citizens of an enemy country, Bernard was stranded on a desolate and uninhabited island in one of the most forbidding places on planet Earth, and they had no way to get home. Now stranded on the desolate Falkland Islands, with their ship the Nanaina having abandoned them, Bernard and the four others, three of them British, decided first to return to the wreck of the British ship the Isabella to see if there was anything more in the wreckage that could help them survive. This trip took a couple of days, not just over water in the boat, but they occasionally crossed some of the islands on foot, hauling the boat behind them. Mind you, there's howling cold wind and frequent snowfalls while all this is going on winter in the Falklands now. At night they'd camp, turning the boat upside down and using it as a shelter. Procuring drinkable water, firewood, and food was an all-consuming job. Driftwood on the beach was their only fuel and there wasn't very much of it. Eventually Bernard killed a seal and they used its blubber for fuel, but that smelled good. When they could, they continued looking for the wreck of the Isabella, but in the drifting snow and desolate landscape they eventually became lost. They wandered around for a long time, several weeks, eating half-boiled pork from the few wild boars they were able to hunt. By June 26th, more than two weeks after the stranding, they ran out of food and started eating the roots of the short grass, called tussock, that was the only real vegetation on these islands. Bernard calls it tushuk grass. This made them sick, especially louder and green, who Bernard says were reduced to the greatest extremity. To make matters worse, at one point they dashed their boat against a rock, splitting one of the planks. It could still float, but they could only make short trips in it, bailing out water as best they could. Finally, Samuel Ansell, the surliest of the British seamen, couldn't take it anymore. As they were huddled on the beach in yet another storm, suffering in the cold wind, he totally lost it, and started blubbering about what a fool he was to have gone with Bernard in the boat on the day they landed. He also let slip that, at the time, the British survivors aboard the Nanaina were hatching a conspiracy to take over the ship. They were just waiting for Bernard to go off in the boat in search of provisions. In other words, Ansel knew ahead of time that the mutiny was going to happen. You can imagine Bernard's reaction. He says he was, quote, greatly agitated, 
but I wouldn't be surprised if he beat the crap out of him. So now Bernard realizes that not only are they marooned, but there's a traitor in their midst. The other Brits, Louder and Albrook, are afraid of Ansel. That's why they didn't try to warn Bernard. At this point, it almost doesn't matter. These guys are now in the same situation, and they better pull together. The famous quote from the show Lost is appropriate here. We either live together, or we die alone. A couple of days later, the storm died down and they were able to continue onward. Eventually, Bernard figured out where he was. He knew the Falklands pretty well by now, and they were able to catch a wild boar for some meat. But it was really only a temporary respite. As yet another storm started, some members of the group started to think there was no way they could reach the wreck of the Isabella, and they thought they should turn back to Beaver Island. Bernard put it up to a vote. The results, 4-1 to one for going back. Only Ansel wanted to go on, and they all hated him. The trip back to Beaver Island, where they'd originally been stranded, took several more days. Eventually, Bernard decided to go to New Island, and he chose a campsite where they were in view of the harbor, so they could see any ships that might anchor there. It was also a good place, he says, to hunt wild boars, and it was near a seal rookery. Now in more or less permanent winter camp, Bernard organized the castaways and assigned them rotating duties. You know in all these castaway stories, there's always somebody who says something like, I'll take the first watch? Well, one person was tasked to watch the harbor for any ships and to cook food. Bernard wanted a 24-hour watch in case any boats appeared. Meanwhile, two guys would go out with the dog to hunt boars, and the other two would go knock off some seals, mainly so they could make clothes out of their skins. Bernard says that by this time, all their normal clothes were totally thrashed and falling apart. You also gotta love the idea of them running around hunting wild boars. That's right out of Lost and also Lord of the Flies. What story about castaways is complete without some wild boars running around the island? Fortunately, there's no smoke monster on New Island, but there were rats. In fact, Bernard named their winter camp Rat Camp. When they killed a boar, they had to hoist it up on a frame made of oars from their boat, and they had to grease the oars themselves to prevent the rats from devouring it in minutes. This is all pretty bad. Unfortunately for Charles Bernard, it was about to get even worse. October 10, 1813. Bernard writes, quote, I proposed to some of the men to go down to Sea Lion Point, at the south end of the island, for a hair seal skin to make moccasins of, as they were more lasting than those made of fur seal skin. Green and Louder said it was their turn to go for vines, Albrook that it was his cook day, and Ansel that he wanted to mend his trousers. I went under the boat and, having sharpened my knife, took my club and called the dog, but he did not come. Ansel sprung up from where he was sitting and said, Captain Bernard, I will go with you. I replied, if you'll go, we ought to have the dog to hunt the seals in the Tushooks, meaning the grass. If there is any there, said Ansel, I will hunt them up. End quote. Suspicious? The dog is really important. If you do any hunting on this island, you basically gotta have the dog. Bernard then made a big mistake. Instead of acting on his suspicion and waiting at camp for the other guys, or the dog, to return, he went off towards Sea Lion Point, and Ansel came with him. But as they were walking through the tussock grass, which evidently can get pretty tall, taller than a person, Ansel suddenly disappeared. Bernard called after him. Ansel. No answer. Ansel, you asshole! 
Okay, he didn't say that, but he had to know he'd been, he'd been betrayed. The other guys had deserted him. Now, Bernard was not only marooned, he was alone. Bernard writes that on his way back to camp, he saw the four others in the boat proceeding out of the harbor. They'd fixed the boat by this time. He waved to them, no response. He ran back to the camp and found they'd stolen everything useful. His bag, his jacket, his sealskin clothes, the gun, four cartridges of gunpowder, needles, tinder for starting fires, everything, and the dog. Of course they took the dog. The story of Captain Charles Bernard's solo survival on New Island is definitely worthy of a big-budget Hollywood movie. He was pretty methodical about it. He never panicked, or at least it seems like he never did. First order of business was trying to find fuel for a fire. With no tinder, he'd have to keep a fire going all the time. So he started burning tufts of tussock grass, which he says burned for a pretty long time. Next was shelter. He built a house out of tussock grass. Useful stuff, that tussock. As for food, he was near a rookery so he could collect albatross eggs. And he found a discarded tin pot, lucky find, that he used to cook them. He made another suit of clothes out of seal skins. I'm not sure how he did this without needle, needle and thread, which he said the other stole, but, you know, whatever. Later on, Bernard made two fortunate discoveries. He did have a small bit of steel with him, and by trying various rocks he found by the shore, he discovered one that would make a spark when he struck it with the steel. Also, he discovered that just under the ground of the tussock grass, there was a kind of peat formed out of the compacted layers of old grass. You can burn peat, and he said this was almost as good as coal, so he didn't have to stay up all night rekindling his fire all the time. Bernard even built himself a little stone house. Believe it or not, it's still there, 200 years later. The structure was eventually incorporated into a building called the Bernard Building, which is now some kind of historic landmark on the island. For two months, Bernard survived on New Island absolutely solo. Then one day in December, he noticed a column of smoke rising from one of the ne other nearby islands. He figured it was probably Ansel and the others. Bernard decided that he would signal them, so he built a bigger fire up on one of the hills. A couple of days passed, and then, while he was out collecting penguin eggs, the albatrosses were out of season by now, he suddenly saw the boat coming toward the shore, with Ansel, Albrook, Louder, and Green in it. Bernard went down to the shore, and the boat came closer. Louder and Albrook said, We wish to land and live with you again, and we hope that you can forgive us. He must have been really pissed at Ansel, who he blamed for marooning him, but he decided to be magnanimous. He decided to forgive him and let bygones be bygones, if they would, and the boat came on shore. Back together again, relations were pretty frosty between the four guys, as you can imagine. It's kind of a wonder they didn't end up killing each other. While Ansel and the others were out hunting, Louder finally spilled the beans to Bernard about what had happened. Pretty much as Bernard suspected, the plot was Ansel's doing. Ansel apparently bullied and extorted the other guys to go along. According to Louder, he even forced them to slit open their hands and do that uh, blood oath type of thing, to swear that they'd never abandon him. It's not really clear to me why Ansel thought he could survive without Bernard, since clearly he didn't have very good survival skills himself, but who knows. Bernard pretty much paints Ansel as a one-dimensional villain. I could see Dom Hall Gleason playing him in the movie version. Eventually there was a falling out in the camp. 
You knew there had to be. Conflict broke out over some seal skins, and Ansel realized that somebody had told Bernard about his little plot. Bernard told the others they had to choose. They could either stay with him or follow Ansel as their leader, but he refused to hang around with Ansel anymore. The other guys lined up behind Bernard. According to Bernard's book, he says, quote, As soon as Ansel saw the issue of the affair, his courage and fortitude abandoned him, and he ran about crying and wringing his hands and repeating, What shall I do? They're all against me. Bernard was willing to let him stay if he behaved himself, but Ansel just couldn't do it. On December 28, 1813, they marooned Ansel on nearby Swan Island. They gave him some provisions, including a knife, which Ansel proceeded to hold to his own throat and threatened to kill himself if they left him. He also said the island was enchanted and he'd be dead in three days. Talk to the hand. Everybody had had enough of Ansel by now. The others rowed away in their boat, leaving Ansel stranded alone. That wasn't quite the end of it. Bernard, Green, Louder, and Albrook continued to live on New Island, hunting seals, collecting eggs, and burning tussock peak for fuel. I imagine these four grungy guys, all with dirty long hair and beards, in sealskin clothes, getting increasingly punchy as the months go on. Eventually, they did return to the wreck of the Isabella and salvaged a few useful items. In February 1814, they returned to Swan Island and looked up Ansel. He was still alive, though Bernard describes him as pretty destitute, looking like a human skeleton, and he begged the men to take him back. Bernard finally relented and let him in the boat. Ansel lived for a couple of months in a separate camp from the others. It was clear none of them could stand him, but at least he didn't try to kill Bernard or anyone else, and there was frequent contact between them. Months went by, and the castaways passed yet another winter in the Falklands. Bernard's account is pretty detailed about their various hunting trips, the progress they made on their little stone house, that sort of thing. Eventually, they were able to catch some of the geese that migrated to the island in the winter months. They weren't living well by any means, but at least they were surviving. One day, in late November 1814, they were on one of their scouting trips looking for seals. Bernard describes it, quote, We had not proceeded far before we heard Louder cry out, as he would have done if suddenly and severely hurt. I suppose that Louder was bitten by an old boar. We called to the dog, which was a short distance ahead, and ran as fast as we could. The dog, hearing Louder crying and screaming, passed us like an arrow. When we came to Louder, he was lying on the ground, rolling and crying, and the dog jumping around and over him as if he wished to know how he was hurt. Albrook, who was a little in advance of me, turned around, looked suddenly pale, and was near falling. But clasping my hand, he began to cry. The first thought that struck me was that they were both mad or crazy, and that it was occasioned by our diet. All that Albrook was enabled to say was, Two ships. Two ships. End quote. The two ships, both British, were the Indispensable, commanded by William Buckle, and the Asp, commanded by John Kenny, both whalers. Once he was on board the Indispensable, Buckle told Bernard that the war between the U.S. and Britain was still going on, which must have been a facepalm moment. But the Americans, Bernard and Green, weren't treated as prisoners. The plan was for the Indispensable and the Asp to sail to Lima, Peru, which was then a Spanish colony. There was some question about whether or not the Spanish would let Bernard, an American, pass through their territory, 
but he was keen to get home and decided this was the best start. Shortly after December 3, 1814, the ships rounded Cape Horn on their way into the Pacific. These castaway stories usually end with a triumphant rescue. Ship appears, roll credits. There's a little bit more to this particular story, though. Bernard and the four other castaways had spent 17 months, from June 1813 to November 1814, stranded on the Falkland Islands, since the Nanaina had abandoned them. Of this time, Bernard spent two months marooned alone on New Island. In addition to this, Bernard and Green had spent eight more months prior to that in the Falklands before the mutiny. That's a long time to spend at almost the bottom of the world, eating seal meat, albatross eggs, and barely cooked wild boar. Still, this wasn't quite the end of Bernard's voyage. Indeed, the story of his stranding on the Falkland Islands is only the first half of his memoirs. The second half documents his very long and roundabout journey home. He detached from the indispensable at Lima, going ashore in a boat together with Louder and Albrook, who, for some reason I don't understand, evidently told the captain of the indispensable that they were Americans. After a long series of adventures in Peru, which was then undergoing a revolt against Spanish rule, somehow Bernard got hooked back up with Captain Buckle of the Indispensable, and they sailed to the Galapagos Islands. There, he caught up with an American ship, the Millwood. In any event, this was now 1815, and the war was over, though word hadn't gotten around to all the ships at sea yet. As it turned out, the captain of the Millwood just happened to know Bernard's wife and kids back in New York, in fact, he talked to them just before they sailed. Naturally, they thought Bernard was dead. Aboard the Millwood, Bernard sailed for the Sandwich Islands, Hawaii. In fact, Bernard met and interacted with King Kamehameha, who I talked about in the last episode. We can easily play six degrees of separation with almost anyone in the second decade, so I find this an interesting little crossover. From Hawaii, the Millwood sailed to Guangzhou, China. Canton, they called it then the terminus of the Pacific tea trade. After that, they went around the Cape of Good Hope, the southern tip of Africa, and, once in the Atlantic again, briefly visited the island of St. Helena, where Napoleon was a prisoner of the British. We'll do that one in a future episode. On October 25, 1816, after circumnavigating the globe, Bernard finally arrived back in New York, completely penniless. He'd been gone four years and seven months. His memoirs are a bit infuriating, not only because of his frequent digressions that make it damn hard to figure out what's going on at any given time, but because there's no payoff at the end. How do Bernard's wife and kids react to seeing him again after all this time, thinking he was dead? He never tells us. He also doesn't tell us very much about what happened to the other people connected with the story. He does seem to have met up with his father who, as you remember, was aboard the Nanaina. He was the one who was supposed to sail her back to New York. From the father, Bernard learned that the whole marooning thing was a plot hatched by the commander of the British Marines and one of the British officers. They carefully waited until Bernard went off the ship in the boat, then took it over, quickly sailed away, and concluded that Bernard and the four others promptly starved to death or drowned. Mind you, three of the five were British, so the Brits were willing to sacrifice three of their own just to get rid of Bernard. I get the impression that nobody really liked Bernard very much. Anyway, the Brits sailed the Nanaina to Rio de Janeiro, and then took her to London. The dad must have been repatriated after the war, but we don't know anything about that. 
We also have no idea what happened to Ansel, Albrook, Louder, and Green. They just sort of drop out of the story after a while. Too bad, I was dying to know what happened to Ansel. As for Bernard himself, believe it or not, after all this, he eventually decided to go back. Another ironic crossover with the show Lost. The characters in Lost keep saying, we have to go back. In 1820, Bernard returned to the South Atlantic, this time as captain of the Charity. He visited the South Shetland Islands, which are technically part of Antarctica. This was another sealing expedition. His poor kids. I guess he didn't know how to do anything else, or didn't want to. Bernard's Point, on the south side of Livingston Island, one of the South Shetland Islands, is named for him. His memoirs were published in 1836. Charles H. Bernard died about 1840 presumably back in New York, though I couldn't pin down a place or even a specific date of his death. Except for the effects of global warming, the Falkland Islands haven't changed much in 200 years. While I was researching this episode, I poked around on Google Earth to see some of the locations that Bernard mentions. They're pretty barren and desolate. Makes you wonder why Britain fought a war with Argentina in 1982 to hang on to these islands. In fact, a lot of the places Bernard mentions were later battle sites in the Falklands War. And, as I said, the stone hut that he built evidently still exists on New Island. If you like this podcast, please share it, tell somebody about it, mention it on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever is your thing. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Munger, there's an underscore there, and my website, seanmunger.com. My historical source for this episode was A Narrative of the Sufferings and Adventures of Captain Charles H. Bernard in a Recent Voyage Around the World, including an account of his residence for two years on an uninhabited island. I love those 19th century book titles. Anyway, it was published by J.P. Callender, New York, 1836. Music Credits The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu No. 1 by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.